and welcome to Harvest Church Podcast. Harvest Church is based in sunny Durban, South Africa. We are a family of believers who are passionate about Jesus. We really hope this message inspires you today. The text this morning is Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And it's a really well-known passage known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, a parable was just a simple story that Jesus told to illustrate a moral or a spiritual principle. And because it's a parable, of course, Jesus can pick anyone as the characters in the story. And in this particular story, he picks an interesting hero. He is speaking the story in response to a question from a religious expert, and he picks a Samaritan to be the hero in the story. And this Samaritan comes along a road and tends to a man who has been broken and beaten after two religious men have passed by on the other side. Now, Jesus could have called this the parable of the good tax collector, or it could have been the parable of the good fisherman. But it is an intentional choice that Jesus uses while speaking to a religious expert to use a Samaritan. Because you see, the Samaritan and the religious expert had historical conflict. The religious expert would have looked down on the Samaritan because of his behavior, because of his religious beliefs. He would have been considered as a less than moral man. By using the hero in the story, Jesus is making a very strong statement to the religious community, challenging the paradigm and the restrictions that the religious experts had brought upon by his religious beliefs, challenging his barriers and challenging his boundaries of what love looked like and who it was okay to love. The story is apt for any time in history, and I believe it is particularly apt for our current cultural context, where our differences seem to divide us rather than us seeing them as an opportunity to ignite this Good Samaritan type of love, the type of love that is able to love someone in spite of the fact that they believe something different, that they behave in a different way from us. This is what Jesus was saying. This is the point of the story. And the title this morning is Barriers, Boundaries, and Building Bridges. A number of years ago, when we lived in Johannesburg, I taught a course on boundaries. If any of you remember the original book, it was by Henry Cloud and John Townsend. And on the cover, it was a dark cover, and it had this very dominant wall displayed on it. The new cover has been changed. 
Very interesting development as ideas grow and change. And the new cover has a pencil with a pencil line drawn through it, clearly making a strong statement that the barriers and the boundaries are more like a pencil line. The cover contains these words, which is a synopsis of the material. When to say yes, how to say no, to take control of your life. The book became a bestseller. Clearly the authors touched on a need that many of us identify with. And although it was a concept when I taught it, the book was released in about 1992, and I think I started teaching the course material about six years after that. And although it was a concept relatively new to the church environment at the time, the concept of boundaries has been at the center of influential research agendas in anthropology, in history, in political science, in sociology, and in social psychology. Boundaries were discussed by a gentleman called Euclid, a Greek mathematician who lived in the fourth century BC. They were added to by Aristotle. And in the social science category, the concept of boundaries is a foundational concept in what is called family systems theory. In family systems theory, it explains that in a well-functioning family, clear boundaries give each member a strong sense of I-ness and, notice the word and, it's not an or here, it's an equal, an equal idea. Give each member a strong sense of I-ness and a strong sense of the we and the us. By having healthy boundaries, each member retains his or her own individuality without, without losing the sense, the feeling of belonging to a family. It is a beautiful concept of unity and of differentiation, of maintaining proximity or closeness while still allowing for differences, separateness, and variation. Now, if you Google the word boundaries and the Bible, which I did, you will find that there are over 45 million references to the concept. The author's making a strong case that even though sociology or social psychology might claim the concept of boundaries in their field, boundaries actually have their origin in the Bible. There are examples of Jesus practicing what people refer to as personal soul care due to his limits required by his humanity. You see, like us, he had a human body that needed nourishment and it needed rest. And he also could only be in one place at one time. And he also only had 24 hours in a day. He took time away from people to spend time with God. And one author suggests that he even managed to do this without any guilt. If you get into the text, you will find that primarily Jesus' soul care had to do with spending time with the Heavenly Father in an intimate relationship that he called Abba, 
daddy, a relationship that is available for each one of us in the room and watching online this morning. Jesus lived in a rhythm of life that not only kept him free from burnout, but far beyond that, it kept him full of God, full of grace, full of truth, so that he was able to respond with compassion and mercy when others had needs, when others had crises, or maybe when he was interrupted by others. When I first started teaching the course material, it was met with an interesting reception in church. And one of my favorite pastors and a man that I greatly respect honestly told me that he was really nervous of what would happen if we let this material loose in the church. He said, if we give permission for people to say no, what would happen to service? What would happen to couples? What would happen to families? You see, the thing is that at the heart of boundaries, there is a concern that if people are given autonomy, what will they do with it? And yet God is not afraid of the autonomy that he gives us. In spite of this pastor's concern, he invited me to teach the course in his church. In fact, I taught the course in several churches over several years. And one of my favorite and most enthusiastic participants, highly identified with the first story in the book. The book is about, the, the first story is about a woman called Sherry, who is clearly out of control of her life. She is driven more by the requests of others, by guilt messages, and she's serving and saying yes but deep down inside, she's really wishing that she wasn't. This participant enthusiastically began applying the concepts early, in spite of my warning to the course that it is better to wait until you have the wisdom that comes from a big picture view, because sometimes a little bit of information is more dangerous than nothing at all. But in spite of my warning, she sat her family down and she said, I'm taking a new course at my church. And from now on, I'm going to start saying no to some of your many requests. After some initial euphoria to her newly found boundaries, and let me just add here that although it probably wasn't the wisest decision, I loved her enthusiasm. You see, as social beings, we are born with a strong desire to acquire social skills. But you see, some of the complex interactions take learning and practice. And learning and practice usually happens with the people closest to us. That's our family. And that's often where we make our most mistakes. And so after some initial euphoria, eventually her family started getting a little bit upset. They felt like the I was dominating the we and the us, and they spoke to her and sat her down and said, we're worried about the barrier course that you're taking in your church. From their view, it clearly was not the picture of the Good Samaritan type of love 
in the story that Jesus told, who goes beyond the call of duty, who loves unconditionally and without any limits. In their view, she was just being selfish. And this is indeed one of the great dilemmas of boundaries. You see, what looks like a healthy boundary to one might feel like a barrier to another. Now, books are great and courses are helpful. And I will be forever grateful to Henry Cloud and John Townsend for being brave enough to bring this information into the church context. But the thing that I have learned is that there is nothing that gives better structure. There is nothing that gives better wisdom on application than if we look at the life of Jesus. Because unlike us who find it easier to teach than to do, in the life of Jesus, we see someone where healthy boundaries were not so much about saying no, but they were about saying yes with a full, wholehearted yes. And that's what the parable of the Good Samaritan shows us. And this type of yes is the yes that breaks through barriers. This is the type of yes that breaks through cultural history and moral differences. It builds bridges in unexpected circumstances with unexpected people, in unexpected timing, and with unexpected generosity. Even when there is difference of opinion, even when we have different beliefs, even when we have moral disagreement, and even when there is a difference of behavior. The story of the Good Samaritan is what Jesus said, this is what love looks like. And for those of us that are in the religious context, we need to open our eyes and say, what can we learn from the story? Where have our beliefs come in the way and created barriers of who we are allowed to love well. Looking at the story, there are some valuable lessons. Number one, lessons from the story of the Good Samaritan. Number one, love comes first. Love comes first. Love comes first before our religious beliefs, before our moral judgment, because that was the point of the story to this religious man. Starting in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it reads, 
On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in our everyday speech, we might think that an expert in the law is an attorney or a lawyer, but this definition has a different one. It is a religious definition. This was an expert of the Mosaic law, an expert of God's regulations and rules for his people. Now, I'm going to suggest that if we were looking for an equivalent person in our modern day context, this would be a theologian perhaps, or somebody that was fully committed to studying God's word and his principles and applying them to his life. This is probably a man of strong moral character and strong beliefs, committed to the law. And Jesus replies to this man, what is written in the law and how do you read it? And he answers because he knows the law so well. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. I imagine myself being in Jesus's presence and him asking me a question and me getting the answer right. This guy must have been so stoked. He's answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Interesting tweak of the word here. The man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turns that word into a word live. Do this and you will live. In other words, do this in your everyday life. But he wants to justify himself. And so he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? You see, the first question is a test. He's got this lay Galilean teacher, a youngster, and he wants to put a tough theological question to him and see how he answers it. And of course, Jesus rises to the occasion. And then the second question is to justify himself. He's a bit stuck now because according to his religion, according to his understanding, a neighbor was somebody who was close to him. In other words, someone of his community, someone who looked like him, behaved like him, and believed like him. And now this is a challenge because all of a sudden the neighbor that he's supposed to love is gonna be somebody who looks very different. The hero of the story is the Samaritan and the people that pass the guy that's been robbed by are religious people. Remember that the Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other believed different things, had different practices. And so this is a clearly intentional choice that Jesus is making. Regarding the expert of the law and breaking his paradigms, regarding his boundaries and barriers of who he is allowed to love according to his very strong beliefs. Now in the story, when I read it, I love to identify with a Samaritan who has time in their day to be interrupted, check somebody into an inn, says, run up the tab, whatever it costs, I will pay for it. But in the last few weeks, 
I must admit, I identify more with the expert in the law. Because sometimes my strong beliefs, my strong principles can confuse me in the application of love, what it looks like. And we can hold so firmly to our opinions that we forget that love comes first. And Jesus has an uncanny way of challenging the beliefs of those that are the most religious, the most gung-ho about their moral code. And he talks about a love that supersedes historical practice. This type of love is the cornerstone, the foundation, the epitome of our faith. And yet we let our religiosity get in the way of our love by choosing to love people that only have behavior that looks like us that only behave like us because we somehow think like the Levite and the priest that we'll be defiled by them. We'll be defiled by going close. What will people think if I show love to this person? What will the other religious people think if I seemingly love the person and it looks like I am somehow condoning their behavior? But love comes first And that's what the point of this parable is. It's a love filled with humility and it's a love for humanity. And it's a love that we can lean into even if our history and our beliefs have taught us something different. You see, love comes first before anything else. And if we're looking for a default, we need to go to love. Bonding Bonding comes before boundaries. Love is the foundation of limits. Relationship comes before any of the rules. And we see this modeled in the life of Jesus. For God so loved you that he sent his son as you are. That love is available to each one of you, that intimate relationship. It has no conditions Love comes before any limits. He pursued you. He is pursuing you in your broken state. Regardless of your situation, God is pursuing you. And in theory, this is easy on a Sunday morning. But what happens on a Monday morning when our disagreements in moral codes and our political views our beliefs and our practices, when we're faced with those, this becomes a little bit more challenging. And this leads me to lesson number two in the story. Sometimes, like Jesus asked the expert, we need to question how we read love. You see, Knowledge wasn't the problem here. Jesus said what is written in the law, how do you read it? In other words, how do you see it? How do you interpret it? It wasn't the knowledge that was the problem for this young man. It was the interpretation and the application. Some of us have the knowledge, but we are not doing a very good job on the application because our religiosity and our moral code is getting in the way of loving people in their broken place. Let's ignite the Good Samaritan 
type of love. You see, for many of us, we've got different interpretations of the word love. For some, love looks like limits. For others, it looks like a bit of indulgence. For some, it looks like freedom. For some, it looks like restrictions. For some, love looks like encouragement. For others, it looks like criticism. Of course, it's for improvement. And the question that I believe that Jesus asked this young man is an incredibly valid question in our current culture. I wonder if how we read things and how we interpret God's word, our moral code is actually creating a barrier on how we love people well. Now, how we read things is influenced by a number of things. Our past experiences influences our view, our beliefs, our families that we were raised in, even our culture, our personalities. But what is often forgotten in this application of how we read things is the very design that we have designed to learn things in an efficient manner. Humans are designed to learn efficiently. So when we learn one thing, we can apply that knowledge to another area. For example, if a child is learning what a dog is and his mother or father teaches him that a dog has four legs, two ears and a body, and he is introduced to a chihuahua as his first dog. Then when the child meets a basset hound, theoretically, because of his efficiency in learning, he can apply that other information, four legs, two ears, and a body, to this new shape of a basset hound. And he can accommodate the new shape into his old learning. It's efficiency in learning. It actually has a name in cognitive development. It's called accommodation. I know you guys are going to be rushing to read up more about it at the end of the service. Sometimes, though, our brains hit a bit of a wall. For example, if that child has learned what a dog is, but he's also learned what a horse is, and now he meets a Great Dane, How is his learning going to be efficient? You see, he has a problem here. Which box of learning is he going to put it in? Sometimes our original learning aids our new learning, and sometimes our original learning gets in the way of new learning. This is how stereotypes happen. This is how prejudice happens. For example, if I am married to someone who beats me, I might learn from that in my efficient way of gathering information that all men will beat me. But you see, we have to be able to assimilate new learning and adjust our old boxes in order to look at men as good. One man beats you, not all men. And there might be a possibility for something better in your life. Another simple example, just say I grew up in a home that I was taught to love my neighbor. And just say I was also taught that drinking alcohol was wrong. Just say, what do I do when I come across a drunk neighbor? 
How do I accommodate or assimilate that information? What do I do with this new stimulus? Do I look at the neighbor and say, I'm going to love him? Or do I look at the drunken behavior and say, I can't love him? This is what the expert in the law's challenge was. You see, he was taught to love his neighbor, but in his head, a neighbor had to believe what he believed. It was somebody that was close. And it is difficult to to change, to accommodate new information. Difficult for the lawyer and difficult for us. Adaptation is challenging. And that brings me to slide number, or number three, point number three. Is it possible to love the person when you fundamentally disagree with his or her beliefs and behavior. Now, this is where the boundary principles are very helpful. You see, the boundary principle says, I know where I start and where I end, and I know what I am responsible for and what I am not responsible. You see, I am responsible for my own feelings my attitudes and my behavior because that's what happens inside my skin and I am in charge of that. But what happens inside your skin are your feelings, your attitudes and your behavior. So I am not responsible for you, but I have a responsibility to you to love you. Now this gets tricky, particularly for us Christians because what this means is that it's not my job to be your Holy Spirit. I can't convict you that what you are doing is wrong. My job is to love you because love comes first. And when I understand what staying in my lane looks like, I can understand that from a perspective that grows love. It doesn't diminish it. For the sake of time, I'm gonna leave it right there. But if you decide that you can love somebody who looks different, behaves differently, and believes different things, then we can get to point number four. Love requires action. Let's read the rest of the story to see what this action looks like. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers and they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. This is two, these are two religious men that are just slowly going past on the other side. But a Samaritan, the hero of the story, as he travels, he comes to where the man was and he sees him and he takes pity on him. He goes to him and he bandages his wounds, he pours oil and wine and he puts the man on his own donkey, brings him into an inn and takes care of him. And the next day he takes out two denera, gives it to the innkeeper, and says, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense. Which of these three 
do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The experts in the law replied, the one who has mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, it might be interesting for you to know that the priests and the Levites, if they saw a dead man, the cost of that would have been to be defiled by his dead body. And here's my question. I wonder who you think that by going close to will somehow defile you. But the Samaritan is not too worried about this. He's not worried about what people think. He's not worried about historical context. This is what love looks like. He goes in close, pouring oil and wine, and his love seems to be limitless. Now, the lawyer calls this mercy. Mercy. Mercy is not a word that we often use in our everyday context. I'm going to replace that with a new word called behavioral empathy. You see, we know that cognitive empathy is being able to see something from somebody else's perspective, and that is definitely the first step. Can I see your view? Can I see it from your context? Compassionate emotional empathy is the empathy that we have when we feel what somebody is feeling. We sort of catch their emotions. And then there is compassionate empathy or behavioral empathy. And this is the empathy when we are moved by our thoughts, we are moved by our emotions to do something about it. That's what mercy is. When we understand somebody's pain, when we feel their pain, and we are willing to do something about their pain. And this morning, my prayer is, and I've asked Josh to come up and play for us this morning, my prayer is that we will be moved to mercy, that we will be moved to compassionate or behavioral empathy, that our beliefs, our religious foundation, will allow us to act in the Good Samaritan type of love, where we will be able to go low with a full yes, with a wholehearted yes, and that we will look like Jesus in unlikely circumstances with unlikely people, with unlikely generosity. Imagine if each one of us just picked one to show mercy to this week. And so as Josh sings, I want you just to ask God, God, show me the one that you want me to show mercy to.